0: Okay, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to... this particular talk um, today. Um, This forms part of LSE's eighth Space for Thought Literary Festival, which has been taking place all week um, with the theme Utopias. Um, It gives me great pleasure to be chairing the session this afternoon. I'm Kirsty Wadsley. I'm Head of Widening Participation here at LSE. Um, I've been in my role for just over seven months now here at LSE. And um, this particular perspective was, of the talk today was really interesting to me, thinking about being here talking about young adult fiction and talking about the idea of reimagining the past and looking forward to the future. Um, In terms of work that's done to widen participation here at LSE, you will have probably, I can see people have got our brochure um, in the audience. We run a large programme of activities with schools and colleges and young people within London um, to provide opportunities to find out more about higher education, subjects, available with a real aim of ensuring that doors are open for students um, to come to university and specifically LSE if that's what they wish to do. And certainly my view of the future, there's been a lot recently about the history of access to higher education, but we certainly have a view going forwards that It shouldn't be as it has been, and we are committed to continuing to provide opportunities and work towards a quality of opportunity in access to higher education. If anybody has any specific questions about our work in widening participation, I'm happy I'll be around at the end, and I'm certainly happy to um, to take those. But from here, I want to um, introduce our authors that are on the panel today. So I'm very pleased to welcome our panel to LSE today. I'm going to introduce... all of our authors in order that they're then going to speak, tell you a bit about how the session's going to um, go today, and then I will be handing over to the authors to tell you a bit more from their perspectives. So... um, First of all, to my immediate left is Monica Vaughan. Monica has spent over 10 years working in special needs, mostly with children with emotional and behavioural difficulties. She's the author of The Ability Mindscape about telekinetic. Preteens and the forthcoming sixth novel, which Monica will be telling us more about today. Um, Next is Philip Womack. He's the author of four critically acclaimed novels for children. His fifth, The Double Axe, is a reimagining of the Minotaur myth, and it's going to be, well, it's been published by Alma Books this month. Um, and Philip will be telling us a bit more <laughs> about his book during um, his talk. And finally um, is Miriam Uh Miriam is an author and a poet. She has published four novels and three collections of poetry, as well as short stories and education resources. Her young adult novel Hidden was a Sunday Times children's book <laughs> of the week and nominated... ...for the Carnegie Medal. It's recently been staged in a small Paris theatre. Her latest book, The Emergency Zoo, which is going to be um, published soon, is inspired by real events during the Second World War. And I apologise to Philip because I've just realised I didn't mention that your book, The Broken King, was shortlisted for the Haringey Children's Book Award as well. OK, I had overseen that in my notes. So the topic for our event is rewriting the past versus imagining the future. In a lot of books you read, writers are either recreating historical events or they're inventing future ones, and our panel here are very good examples of those. So we want to know a bit more about how they decide what they write about. Is it easier or more fun to look back at history or to imagine something completely new? And we're going to be opening it up to you, the audience, for questions and answers afterwards. And we'd specifically like to know about which kind do you prefer reading? Do you have any set thoughts on what's of interest from your perspective? Once the speakers have given us a short talk each about their thoughts on the above and more about their upcoming books, which they're going to give us some readings from, then we will have the opportunity for you to ask them questions. For those who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Lit Festival and I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and we hope it's going to be available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. <laughs> so without further ado, I'm going to hand over to our first speaker,
1: Monica Vaughan. Thank you very much. Hi, so I'm uh, Monica Mira Vaughan, and before I begin, I just want to say uh, how thrilled I am to be here today. It's actually my first event promoting six, <laughs> six, <laughs> I missed my chance earlier, um, here in the UK, and what a great way to start, so thank you for having me. Um, so I write books for children and Young adults. My new book, um, Six, coming out in April, is the most sci fi of um, all the books I've written, and presumably why I've been asked to be here today. Saying that, I'm definitely no expert on sci fi. Uh, I think it's important to say that in case anyone was thinking of testing me on my Star Trek knowledge. Um, Sci fi is a huge genre divided into a very long list of subgenres that include things like um, cyberpunk, time travel. Um, there's uh, space opera, apocalyptic, loads, and many of which I don't know an awful lot about. Uh, My book falls under the category of near future, and in terms of sci-fi, it's probably about as near future as you can get, in that it could plausibly, or perhaps slightly implausibly, be happening right now. Um, To further clarify where my interest in sci-fi lies, before we get talking, um, I'm interested in soft sci-fi, and for those of you who don't know um, that about the two, hard fi- sci-fi and soft sci-fi, uh, hard sci-fi is where the story is focused on the technology and soft sci-fi is where the technology isn't quite as important as how that technology would affect a person or social group and famous examples of that would be uh, things like 1984 and Brave New World um, not coincidentally uh, my two of my favourite books. So, um, What I love about science fiction, uh, particularly soft science fiction, is that it gives the reader, and now for me as a writer, the opportunity to explore the possibilities of the what-if. So my book, um, The What If, is what if you were offered the opportunity to live in a place where we could start again with the benefit of hindsight uh, to make good on all the mistakes that we made here on earth and would you be able to accept living in a perfect world if you knew that it would be at the expense of an imperfect one so i'm going to read you a a short extract from my book and i have to say this is actually the american cover and we haven't got the, the english one yet but look out for a bright yellow and red cover in april Um, And to give you some context, it's the story of a boy called Parker Banks. And he's moved to America with his sister and his father, Dr. Banks, who is a scientist. And his task was solving a problem for a very evil corporation, though with good reasons for doing so. Um, And then his father goes missing and Parker has to find his dad. And in doing so, uncovers the truth about a place called Six. Not too long. He had always wondered what it would feel like. Would it hurt? Would he know what was happening? Ironically, Dr. Banks could have explained in minute detail the science behind the procedure. He could have listed, step by step, required every single step required to destroy a human body cell by cell in one place, and then reverse the process in another. And yet, until now, he'd have been unable to answer these most simple of questions. So far, he was discovering, it didn't hurt at all. And yes... He knew exactly what was happening, though his thoughts were disconnected and transitory, clear for a brief moment before being snatched back into the folds of a dreamlike fog. The gentle tingling of pins and needles in his leg became noticeable only when it began to contract, pooling in strength as the area of focus narrowed in at the center of his left shin bone and then started to move upward. His kneecap began to vibrate. A familiar checklist appeared in Dr. Banks' mind. The beginning of stage eight, he thought, the reconstruction of detail. It was almost over. The sensation, now a deep shiver, began to travel slowly around his body, a body that, at this moment, only half existed. It was uncomfortable, but not painful. Dr. Banks felt the vibrations move up his spine, climbing his vertebrae one by one, like rungs of a ladder. On reaching the base of his neck, the shiver began to spread out across his shoulders, and a wave of overwhelming panic engulfed him. Something was very wrong. Before Dr. Banks could work out what that something was, the fear was gone and the thought vanished from his consciousness. The sensation continued to travel upward as his body was rebuilt piece by piece his jaw, lips, cheek, then nose. Another wave of anxiety hit him. There was something he was forgetting, something urgent. His left eyelid twitched, orange white rectangles appeared trapped behind his eyelids. His vision was returning. The rectangles bounced in and out of sight and his, as his eyelids began to twitch with increasing violence and then, with the immediacy of somebody clicking their fingers, everything stopped. The humming surrounding him disappeared and the vibration ceased. His eyes snapped open. Dr. Banks lay completely still on what felt like a padded table, staring upward and waiting as his eyes adjusted to the low ultraviolet light. His sight sharpened and the black lines separating the dark grey ceiling tiles above him came into focus but his head still felt as if it were stuffed full of cotton wool. It was the same confusion and grogginess he felt when when his alarm clock woke him from a deep sleep, except that he was almost certain he wasn't asleep, and he definitely wasn't at home in his bed. From what he could see, by flicking his eyes around the enclosed space, he appeared to be in a small square room with plain black walls. There were no pictures, no signs, nothing, except the table he was lying on, and now himself. The humming sound reappeared and the shivering feeling returned, deeper this time, on the exact same spot on either side of his body, just below his elbows. He turned his attention to his right hand. It was only then that he noticed it wasn't there yet. Dr. Banks stared at his elbow, the point at which his arm currently stopped, and watched as his lower arm began to slowly materialise atom to atom, molecule to molecule, linking together like tiny building bricks until the arm began to taper for the wrist and then widen again for his palm, then fingers. Finally, the sensation ceased. He lifted his newly formed hand to his face and bent each finger in turn, then ran his eyes over the deeply etched lines on his palm and down to his wrist. A wrist, he realized in horror, that looked very different from how it should look. And that was when he remembered. His mind suddenly cleared. Dr. Banks felt his heart rate shoot up and his breathing quicken. Without thinking about what he was doing, he raised his other hand and began to frantically press on both sides of his right wrist. Parker, he cried. Emma, nothing. He sat bolt upright on the table and pressed down harder. Answer me. He was still calling out, his face dripping with sweat, when the wall in front of him slid open with a loud whoosh and a blinding white light flooded the room. For a moment, as his eyes adjusted to the light, Dr. Banks continued to press down on his wrist and shout, panic overriding any sense of logic. It was only when the view of the adjoining room came into focus that he stopped. The first thing that Dr. Banks saw before the people dressed in purple or the view from the window in the background was the sign of the wall. Three letters made of solid gold. Three letters that speared him with the greatest terror he had ever felt. Six.
0: Thank you, Monica. That certainly got my heart racing um, from hearing that, that reading. Thank you very much. So next we'll move over to Philip Womack.
2: Hi. Um, again, I'm very, very pleased to be here. Um, again, this is my first event for the double Act. It's very exciting. Um, I'm going to talk to you a bit um, about history and myth. Um, and history and myth, um, for me, I think stand behind us completely intertwined. They're not discrete things. They interact with each other. Um, And there actually comes a point when history and myth become one. Um, Who knows what happened before recorded time? All that we have is stories, and what is encoded in these stories tells us a lot about ourselves. The Greeks and the Romans looked back to their imagined pasts in order to shape their ideas of their present selves. Every Greek town had its founding hero. Every city had its foundation myth. Athens, for instance, wove the myth of Agamemnon right into its very bones, showing how the city civilized barbarous um, justice, chaining up the Furies themselves. The myth becomes part of how the city sees itself, part of the message that it wants to show the world. Ancient Rome reached back in time even further to find the Trojan Prince Aeneas, who escaped the burning city and after many troubles founded the fountainhead of the Roman Empire. A power whose language and soldiers conquered the world found it necessary to pin itself to a myth. Why? Why? because an empire with soldiers is only that, but an empire with a myth is imprinted into the nature of the universe. Even the British claimed a Trojan prince, Brutus, as one of the first inhabitants of Britain. English kings claim descent from him, and our own Queen Elizabeth is said to descend from the Norse god Odin. We cannot know ourselves without knowing our pasts, and our pasts are found in fiction and myth as much as they are in apparently factual history. In history and myth we have a cornucopia of stories throwing light on life, death, war, peace, love and friendship. History and myth shape the world. My new book, The Double Axe, takes the story of the Minotaur. It's a story that's recognized around the world. Most of you will have heard of the half man, half bull who lurks at the centre of the labyrinth, feeding on a tribute of young men in Athens young men and women sent to him from Athens. But how are we to interpret this myth? Robert Graves suggests that it refers to a ritual marriage between a priest and a moon priestess, and that the word labyrinth comes from the labrys, which is the double-headed axe. And I actually wanted that on the cover of my book, but instead they've put some weird raiders. Um, (laughs) uh, So the double-headed axe symbolizes the waxing and waning moon, uh, which is the creative and destructive power of the mother goddess. Others have read the myth as a metaphor for a bull-god cult that takes human sacrifice, I prefer myself to think of the labyrinth as a metaphor for the human mind and the minotaur as the monster inside us all that we have to conquer. It doesn't really matter how you interpret it because the story resonates and it continues to resonate. And I think that writing about the future is a bit of a gamble. Um, Does anyone know the Robert Graves analepsis and prolepsis theory? No, well, he he had this weird poetic thing, um, prolepsis, where he entered a kind of trance and saw the future... And then analepsis, where he, he saw the past. And he sort of slightly preferred analepsis, and so do I. But I don't think I'm uh, <laughs> as good as Robert Graves. Um, I sort of think that true prophecy is rare. And when you're engaging with the past, you're engaging with the things that we know made us, and whose power stems from the earliest times when people told stories, right up until today. Um, so I'm going to read to you just a bit from the first chapter. Um, so the, the I, the first person, is called Prince Deucalion Stephanos, and he's the son of King Minos. I was thirsty. My spear was heavy in my right arm. Banser had forgotten to give me a water bottle, and I hadn't drunk anything since the wine at the start of the hunt. The baying of the hounds became louder, and we came out to where a small waterfall trickled down the rocks. There was a circle of hounds, Patch, his little throat quivering with sound, and Keen and Bounce all eagerly barking. Our quarry, the Hind, was at bay. She couldn't get up the rocks, and she was hemmed in on all sides. She was larger than was usual for her age and sex. Her head was raised up, and like a swan, she was pure white. I'd never seen anything like her before, so beautiful, like a creature of moonlight. Suddenly, I didn't want to hurt her. She was frightened, exhausted. She skittered from side to side and jumped back, scared by the feathers that the men had placed to frighten her. The dogs were barking, their jaws gaping, snapping at the air as she evaded them. The sun was high and it gleamed off her flanks. There were men hidden behind the trees, waiting with nets. But now I wanted her to run, to escape. The prince should take the first throw, shouted Timon. I looked at my father. He nodded. Banser stood transfixed. As white as the moon, he said, eyes staring. Come on, prince, yelled Timon. He was beside me now. The dogs were yapping, the hind trapped. I could feel all the men looking at me, their horses restless, their eyes keen. The hind was slow and tired now. She could barely move. Her body was slack and the dogs were nipping at her. A huntsman raised his arm and I took that as a challenge, lifting my spear. My aim was good. I could get her in her flank, in the heart, in the best place. Behind me, Tymon was whispering, more remarks about my brother perhaps. Hefting the spear above my head, I heard my father's shouts of encouragement and all the men roaring and the whole clearing ringing with noise. For a second, she lifted her head up to me and I looked into her eyes. I couldn't hold that milky gaze I threw the spear blindly There was a pause in which I could only make out a single dog's bark And then the men shouted Through their cries I heard the hind's moan of pain I looked up, not wanting to see Timon was clapping his hands My father was shaking his spear in triumph I'd got her, I'd got the hind The thought seared through me, making my whole body tingle I'd got the hind My spear was sticking out of her flank the blood was spotting her whiteness She staggered and fell to her knees And the other huntsmen went in to finish the job The dogs a whirl around them My father rode up to me and clapped me on the back A fine shot, Stefan, he said Fit for a prince He grabbed my arm in congratulation His approval washed over me But inside me, I also felt sick I killed that animal, that beautiful creature And maybe we would never see anything like her again Stefan, shouted Minos, and the men took up the cheer. As they shouted my name, excitement and pride spread through me to see them all standing around me, some holding nets, some with knives, while the dogs pestered the hind's corpse waiting for their reward. The men cheered once more and then returned to their tasks. My father stayed with me for a second. He was about to say something when a sharp, wailing sound, like the lamentation of women at a funeral, chilled the clearing. At first I thought it might be the hind giving out its final cry, my stomach twisted. "'But it couldn't be. "'This was much, much harsher "'than anything a hind could make, "'more harrowing than anything "'I'd heard at a funeral. "'My father released my arm. "'He turned round, slowly and deliberately. "'Swift shivered beneath me. "'From out of the trees, "'into the clearing, "'came a woman, screaming. "'Who is she?' someone said. "'Tall and veiled, "'she was shouting something "'I couldn't understand. "'She tore off her veil "'and it floated away from her "'into the trees. "'Everything paused.' It's Mira, cried a voice, the priestess. She lives by the Black Lake. We had passed her house on the way, a low wooden thing, smoke billowing out of the roof. I hadn't given it a moment's thought. The entire crowd fell silent. The dogs, cowed, turned away from the hind. The huntsman's hands were dripping blood. Only Mira's screams pierced the air. And now I could make out a word, a name among the screams. Dictina! Dictina! Dictina, the hunt goddess. She was calling the name of the hunt goddess. My father got off his horse and handed me the bridle. He walked calmly through the crowd of hunters. I dismounted and gave the horses to the huntsmen to tend. My father and I went right up to Mira. Only then did she stop wailing, and the silence rang like thunder. Her black hair was uncoiled, hanging loosely around her face. Violation, Mira screeched. Dictina is violated. The white hind is killed. My heart jumped in my breast. Now I was so close to Mira, I could see her clearly. Her face was frozen and the voice that came out of her mouth was deep and gravelly, as if someone else was speaking. I have a message from the gods, she said, a message from the mother herself. It came to me this morning in the half-light. It came through the fires and the fumes, and it came in blinding strength. Her voice was lower now, but in the silence it seemed as if it could be heard everywhere at once, between the trees and from the sky above. There is a curse on you and on the whole house of Minos.
0: don't know about everybody else but I was on an emotional roller coaster there <laughs> whose side was I on it kept switching as I was going through thank you very much Philip finally I will hand over to Miriam Halami to tell us a bit more about her book and her thoughts on this area thanks very
3: much Kirsty, and, and thanks very much to the LSE for inviting me onto this fantastic panel and really enjoyed both of your presentations Um, So for me, um, my writing is very much um, stimulated by political and social issues. I, I write because I have something to say, and so often my writing is about contemporary times. But I have this great passion for history, and I always have had all my life since I was a child. And I always wanted to know what it was really, really like to be back there then. And it didn't matter to me when. I wasn't thinking about, I want to be there present at the great moments of history, the Battle of Waterloo or Florence Nightingale. I wanted to know what it would feel like inside somebody's body back there then. What would it feel like in their clothes? What would it be like if nobody bathed? What would the smell be like? What would they eat? So I did an awful lot of that transporting myself quite naturally really and it affected my reading and I read a lot of history and things and studied history at college. So um, it's bound therefore to get into my writing Um, and it has, um, I do have um, a historical novel coming out which I'll talk about in a minute and it has come into other writing. What inspires me to write a story from history is untold stories And, of course, there's trillions of them out there if you're looking for a story. And um, it's those things that I think, well, I don't think anyone knows about this, or I don't think anyone knows about that, and that interests me. And what would it be like to set a story around it? It's got to kind of trigger my imagination. So I read the news on my phone, as probably a lot of you do, and I have a features section. And at the beginning of The Year Before Last, I read... At the beginning of World War II, 750,000, three quarters of a million, domestic pets were put to sleep. Mainly dogs and cats. Three quarters of a million. Remember the CJD crisis when the cows were piled up and burnt in the fields? It looked like something out of the Holocaust. That's what was going on. People were, there were queues half a mile down the high street outside the vet. Now, I read that, and I thought, what? I didn't know that. And I can tell from the gasps around the room that you didn't either. It is a largely untold story. We're a nation of animal lovers. I love animals. We could never imagine that this was going to happen. Throughout the weeks before the war, but particularly in that week when war broke out, this is when the great pet panic, some of them have called it the September Holocaust, happened. And the next thought I had was, oh, there's a story there. I'm going to write a book about that. And for me, this was a story, Um, well, my next question was, what would the children do? So dad comes in and says, tomorrow we're putting Fido down before you're evacuated on Friday. Because we don't think we can feed dogs when the rations come in, and we can't feed the pets when the rations come in. The dogs will run around biting everybody when the bombs fall, and dogs are not allowed down in the public shelters so you can imagine the feeling that this... So, so the book that I wrote which is coming out is called The Emergency Zoo and it asks the question, when the war comes, who will save the animals? Because this is a story although up until this time I had written mainly YA novels for teenagers, I didn't feel this was a teenager story, they'd all be off you know, kissing each other in the woods, they wouldn't really worry about the, <laughs> the animals. Um, and if it was an adult novel, it could be an adult novel, but it would be grindingly awful, wouldn't it? So really it's for, it's for children, it's for It's to 12 year But hopefully, you know, adults will enjoy reading it as well. Um, So there is sort of a great untold story. I love doing research, I don't find that difficult at all. Um, and for me fiction comes from building characters so um, I do a lot of work on writing a cast list and I actually once I start I mean I do all that stuff about what's their name and their age and that but I often go then into free writing um, and so I just find myself just writing away and the, the bits of the story and bits of the research and the characters begin to build and once I've got my characters to be honest I, you know, I, my setting is kind of not difficult for me I can set something in the past if I want to I could set it in the future it would for me be, who are these people, and what's their problem, and what's going on for them? Um, And so, um, in my novel Hidden, which um, came out um, uh, in 2011, Um, the story, I've done a lot of work um, with asylum seekers and there's a lot of background for me with asylum seekers and my parents live down on Hailing Island which is opposite the Isle of Wight off the south coast of England and usually nobody's heard of it which is a good place to set a novel when you want to bring the world stage into a book Um, and um, it's about two teenagers who are walking on the beach one day they see a man fall in the sea and they pull him out and he turns out to be an asylum seeker and he's been refused asylum in England because of whatever reason, but he's been tortured back in Iraq by militias. So he's got people smugglers to get, bring him in by boat. Um, the book is set in 2007, so it's not current. It's not set in current times at all. Um, and they hide him to save him from being deported. One of the teenagers, Samir, came in as a child asylum seeker, and he knows that if they go to the police, they could decide to stick him in on aeroplane back to Iraq and he could be beheaded by the militias when he gets back there. So Alex, the book is in the voice of 14-year-old Alex, who knows nothing about any of this. She doesn't know anything about asylum seekers. She's only just started to make a friendship with Samir, who's called the foreign boy at school, or Paki when the kids feel like it, or Taliban or terrorist. These are the kinds of insults that are banded around in our streets and playgrounds sometimes. And and she doesn't like anything unjust. So she sticks up for Samir, and they become friends. And she goes, hide a stranger? And what if the police catch me? they might deport me. And where do they deport English people to? The North Pole? So she's in a real dilemma. Um, While I was researching the book, my dad had said to me once, you know, they went from here to Dunkirk. And that always stuck in my mind. And I found a newspaper cutting that said five little ships went from Hailing Island to Dunkirk. And I've been over two of them. I've found two of them. So that's my untold story. And I'm going to read a little bit about it. And this is when Alex is thinking about her grandpa who's a significant adult um, in her life. Unfortunately, he's dead. And she's thinking to herself, what would Grandpa have done in my situation hiding this poor, tortured asylum seeker? Well, Grandpa believed in justice and standing up for what's right. He wouldn't have let Mohammed die on the beach. He would have rescued him and kept him safe until he could get help for him. And I know this for sure, because when Grandpa was a teenager like me, he went on a real-life adventure to Dunkirk. The British Army was stranded there, hundreds of thousands of men on the beaches being bombed to bits. So his dad and his Uncle Wilf went with all the other little ships to bring the soldiers home. There was five boats went from hailing, Grandpa told me. They all got letters from the Navy, telling them to come to Ramsgate and bring food for three days. He showed me his dad's letter, addressed to J.P. Knight, Grandpa's father. The Navy knew who to ask, said Grandpa. His dad and Uncle Wolf needed Grandpa to go with them to help crew. Grandpa had been out in all weathers on the boat since he was little, and they knew they could rely on him. And I suppose Grandpa could have said no, like when I didn't want to help Samir with Mohammed, He was only 14, like me. Well, I'm nearly 15. Of course, his mum was against it, said he was too young to get killed at sea, but Grandpa wouldn't listen. I didn't wait to be asked twice, he said. 14 is the right age to be if you're needed, Alex, and you're strong enough. It was May 27, 1940, when they sailed out of the Solent in their little boat, the Saxonia. It were almost 24 hours to go to Ramsgate, even leaving with the tide, said Grandpa. We didn't get there until dawn the next day. They had to sign on with the Navy for a week. They pretended Grandpa was 17, and they even got paid. Five shillings, said Grandpa with a grin. It's about 50 pence today. The Saxonia was one of the smallest boats, only 30 foot long, so they towed us with some of the others, said Grandpa, to save on fuel. Her right proper sight we was. All them fishing boats and paddle boats and barges from up the Thames. There were even a ferry from hailing, the South Sea Bell, all chugging across the channel to Dunkirk. They knew they were near France when they saw huge plumes of black smoke on the horizon. I didn't really understand about going into a war, said Grandpa. It was like an adventure for a boy like me. But then they got within range of the batteries firing from the coast. There were huge explosions in the water all around their boat. We heard about 40 people on board got killed off from a pleasure steamer that got capsized. It must have been terrifying. And I'm scared now, Grandpa, I almost say out loud, as I put Mrs. Sadler's newspaper carefully on her welcome doormat. I'm scared she's going to open the door and ask me what I was doing on the beach yesterday, and then going into the nature reserve, that's where the hut is, where they're hiding him, because you're not supposed to go through the fence. It feels weird sneaking about behind the neighbors' backs. At least Grandpa had his dad to tell him what to do as they steered the boat towards the beaches. My dad's useless. When we got close to the shore, Grandpa said, we could see it was literally crawling with men and there were lines of them standing in the water up to their waist, waiting to get away. They'd been there all day, freezing cold and they was being bombed and shot at all the time. It made me shiver just to listen to him. I could never be so brave, could I? There were bodies in the water, floating in the water too. I'd never seen a dead man before, said Grandpa, and he'd suck on his pipe and stare at the living room wall. One man was so weak, he couldn't get in the boat, so I jumped in the water to help push him in, and he'd... I was in it up to my neck. By golly, it were cold. They got 20 men on board, and then Uncle Wolf and Grandpa literally had to shove two others back in the water because the boat was overloaded. It was terrible to hear them crying out to us, said Grandpa. And once they were full, and they had to sail off to one of the big destroyers waiting a mile out at sea, the water was teeming with all the little ships ferrying the men to safety. "'We worked solid for two days, hardly stopping for a bite or a bit of shut-eye,' said Grandpa. "'A lot of the men had dogs with them. "'We ended up with a little golden-haired spaniel. "'The soldier with her died of wounds before we got him back to Dover.' "'Mum would shake her head and bang the iron down (coughs) hard on Grandpa's shirt "'whenever he got to that part of the story. "'After two days, ferrying to and fro, the gearbox on the Saxonia went, "'and Grandpa, his dad and Uncle Wilf, decided to call it a day.' They turned round and headed for home, spitfires and stuckers slugging it out over their heads. Uncle Wilf reckoned we saved 253 men, all told, said Grandpa. And now as I finish my paper round and head back to the shop, I think it's my turn. No need to be asked twice, like Grandpa said. But I'm terrified, and I'm only saving one poor bloke. Grandpa saved hundreds.
0: Thank you very much, Miriam. That's certainly powerful. I think every time we're reminded of just the courage that people had and um, during the Second World War in all those different scenarios. So thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, now we've heard from our authors and been on a journey through various different emotions and into a sci-fi future... A mythological past and also a reimagining of a very, and stories from a very real past um, for us. It's now over to you, the audience, to um, ask any questions that you would like to ask the authors, having heard from them um, in the last half an hour. So, if I can ask, if you have got a question, if you could please put your hand up um, clearly. There are some microphones, so I would ask that you wait. Um, for the microphone to reach you and then if you could um address your question um to the panel with the microphone that would be very much appreciated so we have one straight up over there thank you very much if you could just give us your name as well that'd be great thank you
4: thank you um to all the speakers um My question. Well, I've got one question and one observation. Uh, The theme of um, in dystopian fiction um, around like the sacrifice of innocent children. I just made that connection in like Hunger Games. That happens in um, the myth of the Minotaur as well. So I just found that how Hunger Games is like super popular now, and that theme um, was you know it's so it was a very scary theme in. Um, the Mine show, and there's a production on at the moment um, at the Unicorn Theatre in London Bridge where um, the audience participation is that um, kids from the audience are actually called up <laughs> to be sacrificed. So uh, if, <laughs> it is, and
2: it's not, it's not in reality, not in reality, <laughs> but just it's, made that clear. <laughs>
4: yes, yeah, it's just to. Um, Remind them of how like scary and yeah. serious that was, but it sort of brings it into like mm-hmm. yes the um, Comfort of the stage and it not being real um, My question is what, to all the authors around um, choosing the choice of um, Choosing voice in rewriting the past so when you Started thinking about your stories. How did you figure out who would tell it? <laughs> Thank
0: you very much. So, yes, to all of you, how did you figure out who was going to actually tell the story that you wanted to tell?
2: Well, um, since you're thinking, I'll, uh, I'll just go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, because I read um, so much Greek myth as a child, um, I was kind of obsessive um, about Greek myth. and uh, I'd have to, I have written four books before, but they were in the third person, and, and it never felt quite quite right and, and for some reason with this one which is my fifth book I, this first person voice just appeared in my mind and I think I think about this quite a lot, but I think it's because I went to a really old-fashioned school and, um, and all the things that we were um, kind of taught about honour and duty and things, which aren't really very fashionable now, and if you if you try and give them to a teenager's voice now, people think, no, no, teenagers don't think like that. But they didn't meet me as a teenager, so I kind of transported uh, a lot of those things back, to, back into the past, and it, it seemed to fit, really. Um, so yeah, it was it was just that that kind of voice, which is maybe quite an old-fashioned voice, um, found its expression in the myth, um, and it just it just made sense um, for it to come through the eyes of a teenager because they have access to things that adults don't have, and they see things that adults don't see. So uh, in a way, it was a sort of uh, almost like a um, a natural process, but that, that had a lot of um, composting going into it.
3: Um, I, I think for me, um, my default point of view with YA writing is usually first person present tense. Um, and Alex's voice came very naturally for me for this book. Um, I couldn't really write a book in the, inside the head of a 14 year old Iraqi boy, although I had previously written a short story in diary form, which is for his voice, but I felt that would just be too ambitious and the, the actual writing in this book um, the way in which it's a stream of consciousness novel and it's actually based on something you can read about it and David Lodge writes about it in the art of the novel it's skaz it's nothing to do with jazz it comes from Russian and it's when you're, you're, you're writing the voice as though the character is sitting talking to you in a room. So it's Huckleberry Finn, it's Holden Caulfield. They're sitting there telling you their story, you know. And I ain't going to tell you all that stuff about my childhood and everything, even though you're supposed to. And that's how Holden Caulfield starts. And He's just talking, he's actually talking to his psychiatrist. Um, and so I, I really sort of quite like that idea. So Alex just takes off, you know. And in, in the opening of the book is, well, I'm on the high street and my phone <coughs> goes and it's my friend Kim and she can't meet me. And, and I just go. I just carried. once I found her, it's like a gift, really. Um, but with the emergency zoo, um, although I have um, a main character, my main character is Tilly, who's a 12-year-old girl. And yes, I, I haven't lived in this time. It's the it's the week leading up to the First World War. But I've been 12. You know, it, it's it's kind of it's it's the part of you that you have experienced, or it's stepping into those characters' shoes. And I love that idea you said about the old-fashioned. Um, because that's in very much in the emergency. So, you know, it's not fair and, you know, that's sticking up your country. It's, lo- it's lovely <laughs> indulging in a bit of that. Sorry.
1: And um, for me, um, my protagonist is a 12-year-old boy. Um, on, a, on a purely sort of writing, like, of interest kind of thing, um, my agent first telling me that you... you uh, that uh, children's books, uh, middle-grade books for 9, 12-year-olds should always have a 12-year-old protagonist... Um, so you're always looking to the sort of upper end of the reading age. Uh, a YA book will always have a protagonist who's around 17 years old. Um, and, uh, and so my boy is 12. And the reason that I choose to write for um, that age group is my background is in teaching, teaching children with emotional behavioral difficulties. And I think books allow um, children to sort of explore um, things in a very easy way uh, when their world doesn't make an awful lot of sense and one of my passions is sort of trying to find a book that will resonate with a particular child and so my thinking is always very much and unfortunately a lot of the children that I teach are um, boys so I think I naturally go to a 12-year-old boy's mind Perhaps I'm just a bit of a kid as well. Um, And so it was easy for me, because the story could have been, really. It could have been an adult story. I could have taken it from that way, a younger child. um, But this felt very natural to me.
2: I think I'm also about 12 mentally. Yeah. It helps,
1: doesn't yeah. it?
0: <laughs> Embracing our inner child or adult, adolescent um, within us. Um, and it's very clear from that as well, the personal connection that you, you feel. And I think we can all, I certainly, as I was hearing from you, was was feeling myself going back to those those days and sometimes how angst-ridden they are when you, when you're in that particular age range. So thank you. Do we have any more questions from the floor? I'm going to take two together then. Can I take you first and then? you in the middle thank you Um,
5: hi Um, my question is for um, Miriam Uh, I think you said that uh, you're an advocate or you're for free writing and you let your characters develop Um, it was also the same on the the emergency suit because it was based on a real story and i just remember that the other day uh, Paul Harris said something like um, that you can write a work of fiction without knowing the ending, yeah, because that, that's, I'm adding also because sometimes it just goes out of hand and, but mainly his argument was that in his case, because he also writes uh, based on real stories, you know how it ends, so you can write that freely in that sense.
0: Okay, so can I, just, can I just clarify? So your question was whether for Miriam she knows how things end when she starts? Even
5: if she lets her characters develop, but at least you you have like an,
0: a point to arrive to. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. And then we'll take the question in the middle. Yep.
6: Hi, uh, thanks very much for all your extracts and talks and comments. They're all very interesting and I look forward to reading all your books. Um, my question is with regards to the idea that there can be topics or ways of writing, obviously, for uh, children, young adults, adults, or any range in between. Um, and a couple of you have mentioned that the books felt natural being books for children or young adults written in such a way as to be taken by young ch- uh, children or by young adults. Um, and also, Miriam, your comments with regard to the emergency zoo um, reminded me of some of J.M. Kutseer's comments uh, with regards to Animals and the Holocaust. And obviously, as you said, Emergencies is a child's book, whereas James Cassier's comments are definitely not to be taken by children. Uh, And I wondered what it was about the topics that made all of you want to write about the topics for uh, children and young adults, as opposed to going for full-throated, leave it on the table and see what you can do with it, adult book. Thanks.
0: Okay, thank you very much. So, what it was, so we've got two questions there. First to Miriam, specifically about whether you have that end in mind when you're, when you're writing, and secondly, what made you decide to write for a young adult audience? All
3: of shall you. I, shall I, shall yes. I start? Oh, just, uh, It's a lovely question, thank you. Um, I think that, that for me, the, the inspiring story is that these animals were killed. And then, if I, um, I, as I said, I I decided to write for children, um, partly because I think um, I wanted. Uh, to, to tell children this story it's a horrendous story um, adults find it hard enough to cope with so how can I turn it so that children can get something out of it and I'm very interested in the hero actually in the character so here I have very ordinary children and they call themselves ordinary London children which if when the book comes out you read it you'll see why and they're just trying to save their animals because the adults are only thinking about the war coming Um, And so in creating the story and the rounding of the story, the beginning, the middle and end, actually I um, I usually discover the ending of my story round about chapter three. Um, and so the issue you for very me lucky. <laughs> was, yeah, it, it always happens, it always happens, and it usually works out. Um, the issue for me was, um, all the children are going to be evacuated, and they're hiding their pets away, so what's going to be the long-term future? And I hope you'll read the books so I'm not going to tell you how they resolved <laughs> it. But wasn't, it wasn't difficult for me, and the reason why is that once I've got my characters, they just tug me, you know, they just tell me, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to resolve the problem. And for me, I can't say enough if you are writing fiction, that you know you really have to put that effort into your characters and if you are writing a a novel and you find yourself stuck a lot of people get stuck chapter 10 I don't know what else to do it go back and look at those characters have you really made them three-dimensional characters that stand up on the out on the page and are real people you don't want something flat and two-dimensional you've got to we've got to really believe in them and then we will believe in the journey they take us on and, and partly, I think also the writing for children. I wanted to write about freedom. When I grew up, no one took me to school or took my little brother to school, actually. I was eight and he was six, you know. And children have lost that, unfortunately. And I wanted to write about how they got on their bikes, they went over the Kalal every morning, they went through the deserted factories, across the field, into a thicket and they're playing in a wood by themselves, two 12-year-old girls Imagine today. So I kind of wanted to recreate that childhood world. thank
2: you. Um, I have an answer to your question as well, um, uh, which which is an interesting one of of the ending, because uh, a myth is obviously thought of as being quite a concrete thing, and it's already there, and... We know the end of the Minotaur myth. But, but actually, that's just a structure. So, so in fact, you can hang anything off the structure. It, it's just a sort of a natural uh, plot, which, which is... I mean, there's all sorts of things about seven basic plots and all that, and, and the Minotaur is confronting the monster. So in fact, we all know what's going to happen at the end. The monster will be killed, but how the monster is killed and then what happens afterwards is, is, is what the ending is. So in fact, even if you have that structure, you still don't know the ending in, in that sense. Um, and then as for uh, writing for children... Um, uh, I can't remember what I was going to say now. <laughs> um, why did choose why do children I choose by? Oh, yeah, it was because um, what I wanted to do was show that um, children are not a special, um, they're not separate beings. They're, they're, they are adult-like creatures. So, I mean, we, we sort of, especially as you grow older and you become distant from children, you, you think that they're very, very strange. In fact, we were earlier talking about having to deal with seven-year-olds, which is very difficult but <laughs> but but also in, certainly in the things that I'm dealing with children had to make adult decisions all the time and life is much shorter and, and we don't really have that anymore and so I wanted to put children into those kinds of situations and see what happened really mm.
1: Mm. lovely so um, and, and I'm going to answer the first and the second one too mm-hmm. I, think, I think in terms of writing the ending because I think it's interesting if you're writing a book that's how you do it. Um, I don't know if any of you have read uh, Stephen King's On Writing yeah. um, one of the best books ever. Even if you're not a Stephen King book, it's a um, King fan. Um, <clears throat> but he does. The, he thinks of a premise and then just goes with it. And I suppose it probably helps when you've written like 200, you know, of books. But um, but he has the confidence in doing that. I. Uh, I like to know my, you know, A and C before I start writing, and I probably spend as long thinking about the book as I do writing it, so I don't actually start writing my book until I've got quite a lot worked out. And I think that's part of writing about the future as well, is that, you know, you're creating a world that has to follow certain rules for it to sound plausible, because you haven't got the help of history to say, well, it might sound like it wasn't true, but it was true. Um, So uh, I plan out a lot, Um, but... uh, so I have A and C. I have the ending always before I start, but how I get to that ending just changes and evolves as I write, um, and I find that a really interesting process. And as for writing for children, um, the honest truth is that I don't really write for children, which is kind of embarrassing, really. When <laughs> you think <that> I do, <coughs> but I, I don't sit, ever sit there and think, "Oh, I'm writing this for kids." What would the only time that that happens is um, uh, swearing. <laughs> funnily enough, it's true, It's the only time that I have a real problem. It's like, you know, it, we have a, a lot more swear words available to us as adults than children, so when they get annoyed, that can be a little difficult um, to express without dating the book. So, you know, you can't say, oh, oh darn. Um, <clears throat> and you know kids don't say that. So that's uh, that's a difficulty. But other than that, um, I really genuinely don't feel like I'm writing for children. Um, I write f- a book that I truly Believe I would enjoy reading and I'm quite um, an impatient reader I think like most 12 year olds are and I skip all the time and so I'm quite brutal in, in when I read my books to think would I skip this bit and I would skip a lot so, um, <clears throat> and I so therefore delete a lot so I think my first book came out at 81,000 but um, the actual amount that I wrote I kept it all Torture myself with is 147,000 words, and I've got better. I've, I've, I've narrowed it down a bit more now. But, but, um, but, uh, yeah, the answer is I don't really write for children.
2: I have exactly the opposite problem. I, I can't get mine over 60,000. Oh really? <laughs>
1: <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, it's happening one morning.
0: <laughs> and certainly having heard and, and read parts of all of the author's books, I mean, I, I was gripped by all of them as well, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's really valuable to, about how we think about... who who it's for, but actually the relevance for all of us in the stories, the stories that are told. So have we got any more questions? Yes, we've got a couple more. So again, we'll take two. So I'll take the lady um, over here first, and then I'll take you next. Thank you.
3: Hello, um, I'm Natasha. I'm a teacher from Wembley. um, And my question is, in the future, when people are writing about the period of time that we're living in now what do you think they'll say and how do you think they might say it
1: well i think it's interesting and actually oh, sorry. Can, sorry. Take, can i take the next question yeah. <laughs> thank you that's so exciting well <laughs> such a good question yeah
0: it really is okay so next question hi
5: my question is for all the authors um, perhaps particularly for miriam when you're
3: sort of writing about reimagining the past And you're writing about true events. Do you have a sense of responsibility about the facts? And do you feel a sense of consciousness about when you're sort of narrating the facts? Or do you feel like you have author's discretion about, like, when you wrote, for example, The Emergency Zoo? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you have discretion to reimagine the past? Thank you.
0: Thank you. What a great set of questions in terms of our theme as well. So one future focused, what will people write about today um, in the future? Um, and one um, looking back at the past, do you feel that sense obviously of discretion or having to hold true to the facts? So Monica, over to
1: you. Okay, so um, so uh, what people will think about writing now of the sci-fi. So I think this is where there's a big difference between hard sci-fi, that sort of um, I didn't give an example earlier but hard sci-fi would be something like The Martian by Andy Weir if any of you read the book or the seen Ridley Scott's film adaptation Um, I uh, make it a little bit easier for myself in that I'm not so focused on the specifics of the technology Um, my idea for teleportation was uh, loosely based on Willy Wonka, and how <laughs> and how they could make, uh, you know, my TV go from one to the other, and I'm like, that's not entirely implausible, um, which is basically sort of the ground of, of sci-fi, is that you do, you have to have, it can't be impossible, it has to be possible, perhaps t- entirely implausible, but possible, given the science that we know now, but I think um, They'll look back on it as long as the technology doesn't, you know, go all over the place. um, uh, They'll look back on it in the same way that we look back on any of these, and I think there is a real common sort of thread here in what we're talking about, which is really it's the human aspect of a story. Um, So we can look at the Hunger Games, like you were saying, and you know, Philip's book, and and see the sort of correlations, the sort of similarities there. And I think the same would be true now. My question in my book is about, you know. is about, you know, living in a perfect world and um, feeling guilty about that. And all those, there are analogies that we can draw. Like, right now, we can go back and, 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 and look at that, you know, way back in the past, and I'm sure we'll be able to do the same thing in the future. So I, I think the only time that a book would really date is um, with, uh, you know, where technology has really just not gone that way at all. Um, but very few books are so focused on technology that that's... You know, that's the uh, key thing. So, I And the other question wasn't <laughs> for me, was it? I don't think.
0: It was um, about, yeah, looking back on the past and whether you feel a need stick true, but I know most of nope. you <laughs> So I can make people. it all
2: up. <laughs> um, the question about what the future would say about us, does, does anyone here read Ina's bit? Of somebody, somebody, come on, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Five children in it? Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so she wrote uh, a lovely book called um, *The Story of the Amulet*, which is um, part three in a trilogy. It's a lovely book, um, and in it, these sort of horror- these smoky Victorian children go into the future, and they meet a, a, a child, a child from the future. And he asks them where they're from, and they, they describe it. And he thinks it's this kind of ghastly, hellish place. And then it turns out it's London, and he's completely shocked. And, I, and, I, and I, sort of, um, I think that that's exactly what will happen in the future, is that there's this sort of parochialism in the way that we think about time. Um, and we, we also like to think that we're on a sort of trajectory of perfectibili- perfectibility, whereas well, we're probably not, we're probably just sort of going like this. But, but we like to think that we're better than the past. I, I mean, I don't, but that's how people... Um, seem to think. So I think they'll all look back at us and think we're barbarians. <laughs> and what was the. Oh no, it wasn't for me. Oh well, it sort of was. Um, um, what was it?
0: So it was about. <laughs> <laughs> it was about um, the pa- if you're looking back on the past, do you feel you've got a discretion over fact or do you feel you. Oh. How do you feel
3: you need to hold? True I, to what's, to what's I think happening. I'll leave
2: that to Miriam because uh, I'll answer it if she doesn't say what I was going to say because otherwise it's. <laughs> I was going to say he'll probably say it for
3: me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think, um, in relation to the question about authors in the future, they will do what we've done and they'll write stories and they'll be inspired by the times that we live in and they'll probably think the technology is like something out of Steam Age. (laughs) which It is, actually. Um, In relation to writing historical fiction, um, I, first of all, love doing historical research, so this is no problem for me at all. Um, But I'm also um, very strict about it and don't allow it to swamp my story. So my historical research will go to one side and I will start writing my characters. But it is very, very important to me to get as much as I can factually correct. Because, in a way, we're all world building. I'm not building a futuristic world, but I'm building a world that I never lived in. Um, And all that I can do is look at all the aspects of it Um, and and to winkle out the details that I want. I mean, in the week leading up to the outbreak of the Second World War, history books just ignore it. They just say, um, oh, well, then there was a blackout, a practice blackout, and then the war broke out. And I wanted to know, because it was every single day in the last week in August, I wanted to know what was going on in the streets around my characters. Um, and you know, I have, a, I have an air raid gun delivered to the park and I have big S in white painted on the shelter and sandbags and I had to find these details and actually I went to the mass observation diary for that and they were writing diaries at the time um, and so I, I, to me the details are important but at the end of the day it's a, a story, it's fiction and so you just have to enter into the world that I've created and either argue with it or agree with it. What
2: were you going to say? Well I, I, I was going to agree I mean there's, there's nothing worse than someone who watches Downton Abbey and says oh there's a, a, a you can see a TV aerial. I mean it's, a, it's not a documentary you know it's, it's not real um, and I think I have a slightly easier job than uh, Miriam because um, I basically make it up but I do, I do see it with research um, things that um, existed in the Minoan past but not, people don't really know what the Minoan past was so I mean, one, two archaeologists will say completely different things about what a room was. One will say, oh, it was the Queen's bedroom. And another one will say, oh, no, it was clearly a bathroom. And then, so then, <laughs> you, you know, what, what are you meant to do? So, yeah, I, I, I kind of just, just use a few details. I think that's the key thing is the detail. If the detail is real, then the story is real. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, Thank you very much to our panel. On that note, we have finished absolutely bang on two o'clock. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you all um, for coming along and for your questions, um, which have certainly inspired some interesting discussion. It has been a very fascinating um, talk this afternoon. Thank you very much to our panel for their input and sharing from their, um, their books today. Um, Miriam and Philip will have copies of the book available um, at the festival Bookstore, and I believe they will be staying around um, for signing. Monica's book is not yet published, but I think her. She certainly got my heart racing, and I'm about what is going to happen. So please do keep um, a lookout for that, and you can pick up an order form um, for a signed copy also at bookstall so that leaves me just to once again say thank you very much to everybody especially to our panel for such an interesting discussion and a reminder of course of both the importance of looking back but also looking forwards and the perspective that we bring when we do so can we all say a huge thank you very much to you